to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. As we continue our study in the book of Daniel, today we look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And because today is Resurrection Sunday, Doug ties this very special day into the Daniel verses. Here we study carefully what resurrection really means. You will certainly enjoy this lesson. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. Over 125 people attend this class, most because of the deep teaching by class teacher Doug Brady, who weekly carefully studies the scriptures from both Hebrew and Greek, finding the actual meaning of the passages. We invite you to visit our class when you're in the area. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so here is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Who all here is going to have a very wonderful Easter day? You know, I thought I had you all trained better than that. You see, the attorney talks to you about nice things and then hits you with the question that you're not prepared to think through on the answer. Do you know where the word Easter comes from? Do you know that that name is derived from an Anglo-Saxon goddess of fertility? I mean, you would think that as we sit here thinking about it, let's see, this is supposed to be Resurrection Sunday. What do bunnies and eggs and baskets and egg hunts have to do with resurrection? Now, the older version of this goddess, the artists say, appeared like this. Don't leave your seat, Jerry. Um, And then the newer version is here on the left. Uh, She's supposed to be Easter. I don't think I want to call this day Easter anymore. Uh, Mardi Gras. I think I'm going to call it Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday. Now, If we're going to call it Resurrection Sunday, shouldn't we understand a little bit about resurrection? I mean, that would be something that would be important if we're going to celebrate. You don't want to celebrate something you don't know what it is. Let me start this way. Does anybody know what the prerequisite is to resurrection? Death. Exactly. But... What is death? Do you know there's a primary death and a secondary death? But of that primary death, there are two different types. Did you know there was so much different dying? 
Well, let's look at that just a minute this morning. I, I want to talk about that uh, and have us to understand these two types. The first type of death is spiritual death. Spiritual death. The second type of death is physical death. And I want us to look at that. And, you know, to me, the best example of that is uh, the story of Adam and Eve. Back in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I want you to think about this. When I was a kid, I can remember as they'd read that passage, it says, if you eat of this, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And then they ate, and they didn't die. Now, you see, I knew all about death because I watched westerns every Saturday morning. And, you know, uh, I knew how to, how to pretend as if you were dying and falling down, you know, etc. Uh, as a kid, we did that kind of thing. And so uh, I was a little confused then. But the reason was I didn't understand what death was. Death whether it's spiritual death or physical death, has one key component. And that component is separation. Separation. When you die spiritually, you are separated from God. When you die physically, your body is separated from your soul and your spirit. Now I want you to think about this a second. How many people in the history of the world died spiritually? How many people died spiritually? Two. Only two. Why? Because everybody else was born spiritually dead. Yeah, they were born that way. And then, no, I didn't stay that way. I, I, yeah, just for a while. I was five when I was born again, and then I was spiritually alive. No longer spiritually dead. But Adam and Eve started out spiritually alive, and then they died when they sinned. Now, I want you to think about that a second, because that's important to understand. And I think... As we look at this, we see that spiritual death is something that occurred immediately for them. Physical death didn't appear, didn't occur immediately in a manner of speaking. And yet it did in a manner of speaking, and we need to understand that. You see, Adam and Eve both died about physically about 900 years after they ate the fruit. But that was the culmination of a process. Uh, you see, Adam and Eve were created at just the perfect age. Now, I used to think that was 25 when I was 25. And then I, as time went on, I thought it was 35. That's the perfect age. Uh, but if you look at my pictures when I'm 25 and you look at me now, you see I'm in the dying process. You would find the same thing, I think, as yourself, if you were to look. But, one of the, well, we all have to come to grips with reality sooner or later. But the thing is, I want you to see is, as we look at this, how did God make man? 
He made man, how? In his image, according to his likeness. In Genesis 1.26, it tells us this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps. And God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Because we were created in God's image, if you commit murder, you should be killed because you have taken the life of someone who was created in God's image. Now, when God made us according to his likeness, how many parts are God? Three. He gave us three. A body, a soul, and a spirit. And I want us to look up just a moment, and sometimes diagrams help for us to see what it means. Here's one that somebody has, and you see there's three parts. Now, there are some people who believe, no, there's only two parts. I would say that would be a misunderstanding of the scriptures because God made us in three parts, just like he's in three parts, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Some people can understand it a little better this way, understanding how these things work. Now, here's the first question. I can remember uh, when I was at the University of Texas, a guy from Baylor called me, a friend of mine, and he said, I got this religious teacher, and he's teaching there's only a, a body and a soul. Is there any way that you can help me find some authority to say that, no, that's not correct? And so I said, well, go in there and show him this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many parts does that say are there? Three. Some people want to say, oh, soul and spirit, they're just synonyms for the same thing. No, they're not. In fact, you might be surprised who, who says that. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, it says, And so also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Here again, two different words. If you look in the Greek, the word for soul is, is suki, and it means breath or soul. You look at the word spirit, it's pneuma. It means wind or spirit. Now notice, breath, wind, there's a tie in here because it's the soul and the spirit, which are the real parts of a man from God's point of view. Do you remember in Genesis 2, 7, it said this, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, a living being, because he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He made the body out of the dirt, but he created the soul and the spirit, and breathed it into the man. When the man loses his soul and spirit, or it's separated from the body, that's when he dies physically. And we need to understand that. Now, the next question is, in being created in the image of God, how long do we live? You mean we're immortal? Well, let's see. If you look in Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says this, he has made everything appropriate in its time, and he has also set eternity in there, that is man's, in their heart, yet so that the man will not find 
out the work which God is doing from the beginning even to the end. So the man has eternity placed into his heart. He is immortal. He's going to live. The only question is where, right? So before we attack the main part, I want us to look at one other thing. If you have a body, if you have a soul, and if you have a spirit, what is the function of each? Well, it's really very simple. Clarence Larkin has a pretty good little chart here that you might want to look at. In these three parts, you have the mind and the intellect, the emotions and the feelings, and the will and the volition. Now, what are we talking about here? The soul is the real part of the man. That's the person you know is the soul. Mind, intellect, emotions, feelings, will, volition. That's the soul. Well, if that's the soul, what is the body? The body is the means that that person uses to communicate or live in a physical world. And the body is given certain senses to work that communication and to work that living situation. We have sight, where you can see things. Some of us maybe can't see as well as others. Not me anymore. But you have hearing, all these different five different senses. Sense of touch. That's how you communicate with the physical world. What about the spirit? The spirit is there to help you with your means for communicating with the spiritual world. Now, many times we don't know, well, what do you mean communicate with the spiritual? Do you not know that you have spiritual senses also? Say, oh, now, the Bible never teaches anything like that. It doesn't say you have spiritual senses. It talks about physical, but not spiritual. Well, I would suggest that you are wrong in that respect. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21 is part of the story where Elijah, and we're going to study this in, in depth one day here soon, but where Elijah is on Mount Carmel and Ahab is there. Now, Elijah has just called fire down from heaven and it's burned up not only the sacrifice and the wood it was placed on and the rocks it was placed on there, but the and all the water that he poured over it and even the dirt and left a crater. And then he killed 850 priests of Baal and the Asherah. Then he goes down to talk to Ahab. And he says, Ahab, you better eat your lunch because I hear the sound of a roaring rainstorm. Or I hear the roaring of a great rainstorm. Now, I am certain that Ahab looked up in the sky at that point. And when he did, you know what he saw? Israeli blue. That was it. Not a cloud in the sky. How did Elijah hear that? Ears of faith. That's how he heard it. His spiritual senses were in tune. His follower, the one he mentored, a guy named Elisha, had a situation that you'll find in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, where he is helping Israel defend himself against the Arameans or the Syrians. And the Syrians decide, we got to take this prophet out. He's hurting us too badly. He's telling them all our plans in advance. And so they come one morning, his servant goes out and they're surrounded by Syrians. The Syrian army has surrounded the town of Dothan and their intent was to kill Elisha. 
And the servant goes, oh, my goodness, come out here and see this. Elisha goes out there, but what he says is, God, I'm praying that you will open his eyes. And God answered the prayer, and all of a sudden, he said, whoa, because you see, he saw all these angelic chariots and warriors who, it wasn't really Elisha who was surrounded, it was the Syrians who were surrounded. But notice one of the things he said, I pray that you open his eyes, not Elisha's eyes. He already had seen it. His spiritual sense of sight was there and he knew what was going on. He just wanted the same thing for his servant. So I want you to see that. Now, before we go much farther, I want to explain to you, the Bible teaches clearly that the separation of the soul and the spirit from the body is what physical death is. You remember when Jesus was on the cross and in John 19, 30, he said, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. A second point on that, that would be the death of Stephen recorded in Acts 7, 59 through 60. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called out on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. So I want you to see and understand what death is. And I want you to see not only is it separation, but it's a prerequisite for resurrection. And now we're coming to the point of the lesson, which is most important, and that is resurrection. So before we go any farther... Let's pray. Father, as we look at resurrection today, I pray that you help us to understand it. You help us to understand what the Bible teaches about it. I pray that you'll help us to see what the enemy is trying to do to ruin resurrection and to destroy biblical prophecy. And as a result of that, Father, help us to be able to understand what you're saying and teaching us. And then that we can be able to stand up and say, no, that's not right. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Help us, Father, to be workmen who can rightly divide the word of truth so that you can use us in these situations and that we won't faint or lose heart. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. If death is separation, resurrection is reunion, a joining back together of the soul and the spirit with the body. In fact, we need to understand that in the same way that physical resurrection brings the body, soul, and spirit back together, spiritual resurrection involves bringing man back together with God. And it really works in two parts. When you were saved, God planted the Holy Spirit in you. But have you really been in the presence, physical presence of Almighty God yet? but you will be, and that will be the final part of resurrection. But why can't you be in the physical presence of God right now? Because you would die. Your body cannot handle it. God's going to work on that, though. He's got a plan, and he's going to change your body. Now, I know there's some people in here who say, now, if he's going to change my body, do I get to consult with him first about what exactly he's going to do? No, there's no consulting. I want you to see that. And understand that as we go on. But let's talk about resurrection for a second. Because there's a lot of people, including some scholars, who say, listen, resurrection is really only talked about in the New Testament. 
It's a New Testament kind of thing. It's for the church. Jewish people didn't know anything about resurrection. They never asked for resurrection. Is that really true? I think not. Do you remember the story we studied in John 11 about Lazarus? And Jesus is talking to Martha. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Where did Martha know that? How does she know that? Was it just Jesus telling her? We don't know about any discussion of that. But I think Martha was familiar with the Old Testament. If you were to look in Job chapter 19, verse 25, it says, As for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, and yet from my flesh, I shall see God. Now, now notice what he's saying. Even though my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will see God. What does that mean? He's going to have a resurrected body. He believes that. If you look in Isaiah 26, 19, you'll see it. You look in Ezekiel, passage 37, 12 through 14, you'll see it. Deuteronomy, 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, Isaiah 26, 19. But there is a very, very important reference to resurrection in the Old Testament. The key reference to it in the entire Old Testament. What book do you think you would find that reference in? Daniel, that's exactly right. It's Daniel 12, 2. Now, look at what it says here. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, we need to understand this because this is a difficult verse in some respects to translate and to understand what it means. Is it talking about everybody or just some people? How many think it's talking about everybody? Raise your hand. How many of you think it's talking just about some people, but not everyone? Raise your hand. Well, you would think if you look here, it says many. Well, that's not all. Many is not all. But many is the antecedent of this pronoun, denominative pronoun, these right here. So what you're seeing here is these, that is the many who for everlasting life and the others, everybody is going to be resurrected here. The good and the bad. Now, wait a second. I thought resurrection was only for the good guys. No, everybody is going to get resurrected. This verse teaches that. Teaches something else that's also important, but we'll come back to that. But I want to show you the resurrection of the bad guys. You find that in Revelation 20, verse 11. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire, and everyone's name who was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I want you to think about this a second. 
if God were to take me right now in the body that I have and throw it into the lake of fire, how long would I last? <laughs> Probably measured in milliseconds. But how are people going to be able to spend eternity there? Because God is going to give them a resurrection body. A resurrection body designed for the torments of the lake of fire. That's kind of chilling, isn't it? Well, we're going to get to that even more here in just a second. Let me, let me ask you a couple of things. There are certain chapters in the Bible that are known for a specific reason or specific purpose or specific subject matter. If you wanted to find the, the love chapter, what chapter would you go to? 1 Corinthians 13, right? Patsy, would you know what chapter you would want to go to if you wanted to find a salvation chapter? Right? Ephesians 2, Romans chapter 10, and I might include in that John chapter 3, 12. Now, if you were looking for resurrection, what would be the resurrection chapter? 1 Corinthians 15, exactly right. So we're going to look at that today. We're going to start looking at the kind of body that's going to come to us on resurrection and the understanding of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 55, it says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Well, let me stop right there. What does mystery mean? It's a secret. You don't know it until it was revealed. When was it revealed? Anybody know when it was revealed? How about when Paul wrote about it? Or maybe the best time to know that it was revealed was in the upper room in chapter 14. I go to prepare a place for you. Would you know about it, though, 100 years before then? Ah, that creates a conundrum, does it not? Somebody's going to have a few words to talk to me about that on the way home, but that's okay. I'll tell you a mystery will not all sleep, but will be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. What does that mean, imperishable? Can't perish. And we will be changed. For this perishable, meaning my body right now is perishable. Uh, I'm seeing that more and more all the time. Must be put on, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortal, then, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If you were to go out to the graveyard on the Northwest Highway in Bodacker, what's the name of that place? Sparkman Hillcrest, and you look for Pauline Barngrover's grave, my maternal grandmother, you will find on her gravestone, where is your sting, O death? Because it's been changed. Now, as we look at this resurrection passage, there are two analogies that Paul makes to describe the order of resurrection to each of the primary groups who are reading it. You see, there are Jewish people reading it, and there's also Greco-Roman culture reading it. So first, let's look at the Jewish analogy as he explains it to them in verse 22. For as it is in Adam, all die, so it is in Christ, all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Now, let's stop there just a second. Does a Jewish person recognize this phrase, first fruits? Of course they do. That is a specific scriptural description. You can find it in Leviticus 23 and Leviticus 19. Let me tell you how it worked. Every year, about the time of harvest, the first thing that would happen, there would be some early crops that would come up. They were called the first fruits. You were to gather those first fruits up and you were to take them into the Lord and give them to him. Well, what if nothing else came up? No, you see, by your giving him the first fruits, it's your trusting him that the rest of the harvest will follow. Okay. Then there was what's called the general harvest where you take the rest of it up. And then after that, you have the gleanings. You don't harvest all of it. You leave part of it in the field so that those people who are out of luck, who are poor and destitute, they can come in and they can gather up grain for themselves. Not a handout, but an opportunity to work to, to keep yourself alive. Now, that pictures God's resurrection plan. Number one, who was first fruits? Jesus. And he was resurrected first. Who's going to be the second fruit, the general harvest, the church in the rapture spoken of, say, in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But then after that, after the tribulation period is over, why after the tribulation period is over? Because that's the last seven years of what? The Jewish dispensation, right? After that, that will be the resurrection time for the Old Testament saints and also those who are saved during the tribulation period. That is immediately prior to the millennial, thousand-year millennial reign, millennial kingdom, all right? Three resurrections. That's what he's talking about in this Jewish analogy. Now, I'm not Jewish. You could say I'm Greco-Roman, and I like the analogy better for the Greco-Roman audience. Look at the word the first part of verse 23, but each in his own order. Well, you read that and you just think it's filler and yes, let's go on and maybe first fruits is important. But oh, if you think that you're wrong, his own order is the Greek word order is tagma. And this Greek word tagma, it really means or is speaking of a Roman victory parade. You know, the Romans always thought they should celebrate every victory. For almost every game, they had a Super Bowl uh, parade. But there was a specific way that you would do it. As the parade came through, the one in the lead would be the victorious general. And he would lead everything, and he would be on a very beautiful stallion or awesome-looking chariot. He would come in. Then the second group behind him would be his trusted officers, maybe his bodyguard. That's not one person, but it would be a troop of his special forces who were responsible for protecting him. Then after that would be the rest of the soldiers. But then after that would be the enemy, either in chains or in a cage or something like that. So it would be four. Now, do you notice how that lines up? Jesus as the victorious commander, the church as his special group next, the rest 
that is Old Testament saints and saints who people who were one to the Lord during the tribulation, they're third, and then unbelievers are fourth as they're going to their due penalty. And that's the way it's described. That's the order of resurrection that we need to understand. Now, as you look at this and you see how God has described it, there are people who say, oh my goodness, Doug, that just can't be. In fact, Dad, Doug, you just got to sit down. This is, is way too sad. You're, how bad, Doug, is hell? Well, since the creator was the one who created it, could you get anything worse? And you're going to take creatures, millions and billions of them, who you created, and you're going to put them in hell, not just for a while, but forever. No, that can't be. God could not do that. Is God not a God of mercy? Is God not a God of love? Is God not a God of forgiveness? He can't keep everybody there in hell forever. That's just not right for him to do. He just wouldn't do that. Now, what has come about is an argument on two sides. One, the doctrine of eternal retribution. And secondly, the doctrine of annihilationism. Annihilationism. I always have trouble with that word. Annihilationism. Now, what the doctrine, quote unquote, you know, the heresies are called doctrines sometimes. What the doctrine of annihilation is, is this. They are judged in the great white throne judgment. They are judged according to their deeds. And when God makes the determination of the judgment for that one person, it's going to be how long they have to stay in hell. You know, now I was going to get in trouble. I was going to make comparisons of people. Let's see, maybe I ought, ought to use somebody like Hitler instead. You know, Hitler should have to stay there a lot longer, maybe 100 years, uh, maybe 200 years, where, you know, some guy who's destitute on the street and, you know, so... He didn't really had much of a chance, maybe, you know, a week or two. Now, that's what they want to say. In other words, it'll be graded out perfectly because God is just how long they should stay in there. Now, why is it that they come up with this idea of annihilationism? Well, because we're soft-hearted. Well, I don't know if it's the people who are going there who are coming up with this, but... They're going to deny it completely. But, you know, I've talked to Kim Pedersen, and he says, you know, I wish it was that way. I have to tell you that if I'm the guy, God came to me and said, all right, Doug, you want to change it to where they're just only there for a part of a time, and then they're annihilated? I would be tempted. Why do they have to be punished forever? You know, forever is a pretty darn long time. But, God is not asking me, may ask him, but not me, what to do here. Now, if you want to side on the annihilationism position, you will have good company. The Pope is on that side. He believes not in eternal hell anymore. Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, you'd be with them. They, they believe in that. They call it the common grave. And, but you know what? If you want to know the truth, what should you do? Go to the scripture. That's what we're going to do today.
But let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to, those, to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire. That's on the second coming. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is God saying? I get retribution. Goes on to say, how long does it last? These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. What is that saying? Does it not say eternal? If you're reading the King James, it says everlasting. There's no difference really as far as going forward. What that means is it, Charles, can you tell me the, the Greek word there for everlasting? Ionios. Well, let me tell you what they do. To be able to beat it, they've got to deal with this word Ionios because it's translated by all major translations as either eternal or everlasting. If you look there in your notes, this word Ionios means without beginning and end that which has always been and always will be, without end, never to cease, everlasting. How can they fight that? Well, what they do is they say, now wait. Aionios, this Greek word, came from another Greek word, which is accurate, and that Greek word is aeon. Aeon. And what it, let me tell you what aeon means. Aeon means it can mean forever, an unbroken age in perpetuity, or it can also mean a period of time or of age. So therefore, Ionius has that added meaning in it too, because it came from Aeon. That's not right. But what we're going to do today in examining this, we're going to give them that. Now, it's not right. Ionius does not mean a period of time or a specified age. But let's assume for the purposes of argument that it does. Now you have this word, Aeonius, that has two potential meanings. What meaning do you attach to it? When you're trying to make that decision, Dawn, are there any rules for the translation like that that you should pay attention to when you're trying to decide which meaning to give it? How, is there any other rules besides that first one of context? Now, I was going to go context. And what's the third one? Context. Now, that's what everybody says, but we're going to look even deeper into the context. Three different contextual ways of determining what you do. And I'm going to give you an example of each as, as we go through so that you can see. Look in John chapter 3, verse 36. First, there's the rule of reciprocal translation. Reciprocal translation. In John uh, chapter 3, verse 36, and you'll notice that I am quoting from the King James Version here. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God shall abide on him. Now you notice, here are two words, basically the same word right there. Now I say basically, because the first word, believeth, is pistuo. The second word has an alpha put on the front of it. It's called the alpha privity, which negates the word. Properly translated, believeth not. Okay? So, 
the word, the reciprocal rule, if you're going to use it one way in the start of the verse, you have to use it the same way in the second part of that verse. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. He who does not obey. Do you see the doctrinal implications of that? Somebody trying to put works into salvation? Salvation is faith alone in Jesus alone and his grace alone. But that's the rule. If you're using the same word twice, you should use it the same way. Number two, the second rule we want to see of, and, and that second one is comparison with similar passages in the other Testament. Here's what I mean by that. If you have a word, say, in the Greek New Testament that can have two meanings, but then you look for the same passage, the same statement in the Old Testament and use a Hebrew word where that word can have only one meaning, then you know how to translate the Greek word correctly, you see. Let me give you an example, one that we're all familiar with. If you look in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord God will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and he will call his name Emmanuel. That word there in Hebrew, virgin, can mean virgin meaning a female who's never had sex before, but it can also mean a young woman of marital age. Now, what kind of sign would it be that a young woman of marital age is going to have a child? That probably happens a thousand times a month in Israel at that. But be that as it may, if you go and see that Jesus quoted that in Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. He used the Greek word that can only mean this. It can mean if it's female, she's a virgin. If it's male, it's a male who had never had sex before. It's very clear. So you now know how to translate it in Isaiah that it means virgin. And it's understandable then. Also, if you were to look in the Septuagint, which was written 250 years before Jesus was born, it also translated that word when it translated the Hebrew into Greek with this Greek word that meant just virgin. Third rule of context I want you to see. The rule of repetition of the same word. When you repeat a word... That gives it extended meaning. For example, in 2 Chronicles 36, 15, it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again. Let me give you some examples of how we do that in English. David, what does the word in English mean forever? Forever. Can't use the same word in the definition. How about endless, everlasting, no end? But don't we sometimes say forever and ever? What's the purpose of that if forever just means unending? It's to emphasize the point, but it's clear that it's extending it on as long as it can go. We do the same thing in English. We say over and over again. Over again is enough, but Kim, you know, no, you're not getting ahead of me, are you? Holy, holy, holy. And then three times. Three times. That's even stronger. Stronger. Jesus said barely, barely. That's stronger. Right. Truly, truly. Verily, verily. Exactly right. And, and it's a strong emphasis. Now, let's talk about these rules now and apply them to this question of annihilationism. Matthew twenty-five forty-six. Jesus is speaking and he says, These will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If you ask these people on annihilationism and say, Look at this second group. Are they going to be live forever? Yes. The people going into punishment, are they going to live? No. 
Do, do you see the ridiculousness of that? If it's going to use Ionios as the punishment and Ionios as the life, you translate it the same way. Another thing I want you to see, this word Ionios, in Romans 16, 26, it says, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the Ionios God, the eternal God has been made known to all nations. Is God eternal? Well, yes. Is my salvation eternal? Is heaven eternal? Is punishment like a fire eternal? Invention. Yes. You just said was DTS. All right, let's look at this uh, comparison to the other testament in Daniel, chapter twelve, verse two. Do you remember this? It says, "Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake; these to everlasting life, and the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt." Now, is that the word Aionios? No, it's Hebrew. Isn't that Greek? The Hebrew word is olam, and olam means forever, everlasting, evermore, perpetual, etc., etc., unending. It only has one meaning in the Hebrew. So if you want to know how to translate under the same circumstance, if you have a word in the Greek that can mean two things, you don't. But if you did, you translate it the way it came across in the Old Testament in Daniel 12, 20, when 12, 2, when it's talking about uh, resurrection. It's forever. The punishment is forever, just like the reward is forever. Now, it's the same word in the Old Testament that is used to describe God. In Psalm 92, it says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth of the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's the word Olam. Now we're going to look at this third rule, the rule of repetition. The rule of repetition. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. These who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives his mark. Now, so you know, that is not the word Ionius. That is the word Aeon. Aeon can mean a period of time versus forever. But, when it's used in repetition, that means it's the meaning that's longest. That's the purpose of having it in repetition. And so you begin to see this means forever. And it goes on and on in Revelation 4, 9 and 10. It says this, And when the living creature gives glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, here, aeon, aeon, it's forever and ever, and it's now referring to God, and you see it's forever and ever. Now, let's look at a few things Jesus said about annihilationism. In Matthew 18, 8, it says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. Eternal fire. That's the word aeonios, eternal. Then he's going to describe it again in a way that makes us know that it can't be translated for a period of time because in Mark 9, 43 and 44, it says this, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better to enter life cripple than have two hands and go to hell into the unquenchable fire. 
What does unquenchable mean? Yeah, I can't put it out. Exactly right. It goes on in this verse, and where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, Jesus is saying here, this lasts forever. And we need to come to understand that. Now, maybe one of the best places to see this, I find, is in Revelation 20, verse 10. Let me give you the setting here. What has happened is Jesus has come back. He has conquered the beast, the false prophet, and Satan. Now, two of them, the beast and the false prophet, he throws into the lake of fire. He doesn't throw Satan in there because he's got a further purpose for him. He throws him into the bottomless pit in chains and holds him there until he's ready for him again. Then comes the millennial kingdom, a thousand years. We rule and reign with Christ here on this earth for a thousand years before the earth is completely destroyed and remade. Then he is going to loose Satan again and let him have a chance to deceive some people. And then after he deals with that, we come to verse 10 of chapter 20. And it says this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So he's thrown into the lake of fire. Now, where the beast and the false prophet are also. Now wait, how long have they been in there? A thousand years. They haven't dissipated. They haven't dissolved. They haven't evaporated. They haven't been cremated. They haven't been incinerated. They haven't been annihilated. They haven't been methylated. They haven't been any of that. They're still going strong. Dawn. This is another example, though, of translator interpretation dealing with in what way? In the ESV, they use the past tense. So just like in the other verse, the American Standard I am almost certain. I didn't look at that. I tend to look at the King James because I get questioned on it a lot, if you understand what I'm saying. But I didn't look at that, but I'm almost certain where the beast and the false prophet are is present tense. And you can tell that, Don, by the remainder of the verse. Look at it. And they will be. What tense is that? Wait, there's the pronoun they. Is it referring to the devil? Well, yes, but not alone. It's referring to the devil and the false prophet and the beast. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we need to be able to see that and do comparisons. That's why we to be servants who study and show ourselves approved unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, there's a couple before I finish, but two considerations I want us to look at before we finish. First, I can remember once when I was young, I got my first tie that I got to wear with a suit. And I had gone, it wasn't one that just somebody bought for me, uh, although my mother was an expert tie purchaser, I guess. But uh, I went with her and I loved this tie. I wanted to wear it with every suit that I had. And then one time I found a string hanging off of it. I thought, well, we need to get rid of that string. But did I cut it? No, I pulled it. And you know what happened? The tie was ruined. Uh, can we put it back in, Mom? No, it doesn't work. In the same way, if you start pulling a string in the tapestry of Bible doctrine, it doesn't stop 
with the one place you are. If you don't have eternal retribution as a centerpiece of God's dealing with sinners, it has a chilling effect on our evangelistic efforts. Oh, they're just going to get annihilated and, you know, they'll be gone. They'll get what they deserve and then that's it. It has a chilling effect on that. It has a chilling effect on everything. Why do you think Jesus spent more time talking about hell than he did heaven? And he did. Because he wanted you to know what is at stake here. You know, that way you can put it to somebody when you're sharing the Lord with them and they say, well, that's good, Doug, but I want to think about it. Can I think about it? Sure you can. Now, if it was me, I'm looking at eternity in heaven with God versus eternity forever and ever in the lake of fire and torments. I don't have to think about that very long. It gives me the opportunity to make that point. But the fact is, we need to understand that. A second thing before we finish is this. As of Revelation 20.10, the devil has met his end. And although he is immortal, he will spend his eternity in the lake of fire. He will never be released from that prison again. He will never bother or infect us again. We are free from that scalawag and he is gone. Praise God, devil is going to get his due. You've been in there for a million years. And yet, has it just started? Just started. Horrible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we could meet here together. I thank you for helping me as I to get through this lesson. I pray that you will lead us as we continue in our study of finishing this book, Daniel. Help me in my preparation for the next series, short series we're going to do. I just thank you, Father, that your son rose again. I would be in serious distress if he didn't. My life would be worthless if he didn't. But Father, help me to understand that his resurrection is a down payment of a promise to me that I will be resurrected and that everyone here in this room who's received Jesus as their personal Savior will be resurrected. And all we ask now, Father, is come back for us soon. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 